0: From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project.
1: Think about it, everything that, everything creative that has been made has like some sort of foundation in the real world that inspires it. So, is anything really new?
2: You see it a lot today, in film, in music, even in radio, the remake. Now, remakes of songs, movies, and plays have been around for a long time. Shakespeare did a lot of them. Milton and Homer, too. Both big fans of the remake. But it wasn't until the 20th century, with the advent of sound recording and film, that the remake truly arrived. In our generation, the remake has become almost the dominant cultural experience. Bands don't just cover each other anymore. They sample and remix, twisting the old into something new. And how could this have even happened, if not for one of the best-known instances of remaking? the turntable, known to our grandparents as the phonograph. Directors don't just update old movies anymore. They actually use bits of old footage or recreate a film shot for shot. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho got that treatment in 1998 by director Gus Van Sant. And it's not just songs and movies. We are constantly recycling the old into the new everywhere, making the new out of bits of the already familiar. Anywhere you want to look, you'll see the fruits of creative remakes. The Art of Machinima, for example, repurposes video games using characters, settings, and graphics from the games to create wholly original narratives. One of the most popular, an internet series called Red vs. Blue, has the faceless warriors from the game Halo standing around, cracking jokes, and complaining about their jobs. Elsewhere on the internet, you can find websites devoted to remaking real matter, not just digital bits. A blog called Ikea Hacker offers a space for people to share ways they've remade Ikea furniture into furniture that is, well, cooler. One example? A wastebasket gets turned into a photography light tent in a few simple steps. Video games, pop music, Ikea furniture, classic horror. Why don't people just leave them be? What's behind the fervor for remaking? Well, probably a lot of reasons. But maybe the answer is that sometimes when the source is really good, people feel like they can tap into it again and get the same effects. And maybe, when you remake something, no matter how much you try to keep every part the same, the result is inarguably different. And so, in a sense, you've made something new. Is it really that important whether the raw material comes from something you make or something you find? Creativity isn't in what you start with, it's in what you have when you're done. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Daniel McDougal. Today's show is called Remaking the World We Live In. And it's about people who take one thing and make it into something entirely different. We focused on sound today and how people repurpose rethink, and reimagine sources of, and uses for, sound. Our show today in three parts. First up, the instrument remade. Bart Hopkin, designer and builder of experimental instruments, tells us about some of the several hundred he's made out of everything from PVC pipe and Coke bottles to everyday hardware. Second, bicycle battle stations, breathing tomatoes, and snapping shrimp, sound from the most extraordinary places. Three artists from Stanford Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics talk about making music without instruments. Third and last, Punishment Remade. How one son captured his father on recording and turned getting grounded into the best inside joke his high school had ever seen. But first, I let my friends tell me about some of their experiences with remaking the world.
3: Music remakes, I remember in like junior high and high school there were a lot of like hip-hop or rap songs that like So any of the ones that I would like I would later find out were like based on oldie songs
0: Afterwards.
2: Did it make you feel old?
3: It made me feel renewed, hip and fresh <laughs> A few years ago, uh the Dixie Chicks redid the Fleetwood Mac song, Landslide, and everyone thought that it was, like, the Dixie Chicks original song, and I got totally angsty about it, because I was like, no, you don't understand. The Fleetwood Mac version is the original. And everyone was like, no, what are you talking about? There's just the Dixie Chicks version.
2: So what did you what did you do about it?
3: Whined, mostly. But see, here's the thing. The Fleetwood Mac version, not actually that great. Honestly, it was probably more my music st- my secret desire to have musical street cred coming out, and like, I know about the original version of this song and you don't, I'm better than you, ha ha ha. Which knowing about Fleetwood Mac kind of by definition makes you not cool, so I'm not really sure how that worked itself out in my head. I'll say can you I was thinking about the national anthem and people like always sing that and when they sing it their own ways, that's kind of like a remake and most people really dislike that, like if you add too much instrumentation
2: like, most modern renditions of the National Anthem?
3: Um, Most modern renditions that try to vary too much from the set original version. I'd just like to point out the strange
4: number of remakes that Lindsay Lohan has been in, (laughs) such as The Parent Trap
1: and Freaky Friday. (laughs) My favorite was Mean Girls, but that's not really a remake, is it? Oh, I guess it is, from a book. Everything in the world, like a remake of reality, like is every is anything truly original? <laughs> I mean if you think about it, everything that, everything creative that has been made has like some sort of foundation in the real world that inspires it. So is anything really new?
2: So are you saying there is no originality left in the world?
1: Yes. <laughs> There's no hope for us.
2: Was there ever originality?
0: I,
1: I, I don't know. That's the thing. Maybe it was like the very first person who made... I don't know! I don't know. Existential crises!
5: <laughs> Can you tell me about something that you've remade in your life? Freshman year, I went into a construction site over by the physics building and got these blocks of steel that had come off of an i-beam and i took them not really knowing what i was going to use them for but knowing that there had to be a use for large blocks of steel and so i took them and i made this sign out of them using arc welding and i wrote the word welding on it, and the, the eye was holding the two pieces of steel together, and it was some sort of art project where the part had to symbolize or be a metaphor or something. It was very profound. I also got, at the same place, I got these little steel things that i think fit into us like a cable like for holding cables together and those ended up on a hat it was mostly duct tape this gray kind of four-sided four-sided and lopped off at the top pyramid and so these these things were gray and it matched with the shiny gray of the duct tape Do you have anything else? I used a CD to make into a hair trigger switch. What's a hair trigger switch? It's a switch that allows you to control a very very large force with a very very small one, like a mouse trap. A mouse trap is an example of a hair trigger switch. So we had this giant bit of surgical tubing, essentially a giant rubber band, um, stretched out and ready to be released, and we needed to release all of this energy by having a small string be tugged so we had this CD that we cut in half and we were using it such that if you bent the CD you released this knob on a string that was holding the giant rubber band back it worked very well
2: Our first story today is about remaking musical instruments. One of the more popular freshman introductory seminars is a class in making experimental instruments. One of the guest lecturers in the class was Bart Hopkin, founder of Experimental Musical Instruments magazine. A few weeks ago, our producer Charlie Mintz visited him at his point near Point Reyes, California. Bart played some of his unusual creations and proved there's always something new under the sun.
6: And if you had a complete scale, you could play them melodically. And it's actually, I've done it before, it's its a great song. I'm Bart Hopkin. Uh, I'm the guy who runs an organization called Experimental Musical Instruments, which is devoted to interesting and unusual musical instruments of all kinds. So for many, many years, Experimental Musical Instruments put out a quarterly journal on the subject of unusual musical instruments, who is building what and how to build them and all that kind of stuff. And I also like to build instruments myself, and I'm happiest if whatever I'm working on now is as different as possible from whatever the last thing i made was and also as different as possible from things other people have made which is harder to do than you might think the idea of doing something like this because I I knew that I couldn't be the only person that was interested in this stuff but I didn't know how to connect with people that were and I was curious and so I put together this little 16 page thing and managed to get a very small number of people to subscribe to the first issue and uh, it it grew from there it didn't grow huge but it at least became self-sustaining from there and then um, then ideas where i was just living in a world of wonderful instrument making ideas i mean everybody who had a cool idea if i was doing my job sooner or later i would become aware of it or it would come across my desk and even started just arriving in the mail kind of you know um uh, like there's a guy named pierre bastien who does these wonderful things where he um he he makes things sort of out of the equivalent of tinker toys and and puts little electric motors on them and they make these slightly crude, slightly imperfect sounds, and then he improvises on conventional instruments like baritone horn over them. And somehow there's something so very moving to me about these clumsy things, struggling along and playing these really patterns that aren't quite right but sound so wonderful. I don't know why that came to mind, of all the things that might have come to mind. Pretty sounds tend to be a lot of the time. Pretty sounds tend to be um, territory that's well explored, obviously, um, and so it c- it's it's a wonderful challenge to make pretty sounds, but. Making bizarre sounds is is a larger territory to explore mm-hmm. because the, the ta- sounds don't have to be inharmonic, which means that the overtones can have a wider variety of relationships to the fundamental pitch. Well, I love, I, I but I, you know, I don't want to say, oh, I love doing these kooky sounds and isn't that god awful and all that stuff like that. Um, I, it, it's not. It's, I hope it's. I want to say it's not all I do.
4: Um, how much are you dictated by what you think sounds good and how much do you go by what you think people will enjoy listening to
6: um, th- I mean that's that question is one where I probably should go get some therapy on that question <laughs> uh, I I um, one of the funny things about doing experimental musical instruments is that a very large percentage of the articles that were submitted to me were um, people who have people tending in an avant-garde direction whereas uh, I was thinking well this can be good for school teachers who want to work with their children this can be good for hobbyists this can be good for and I wasn't thinking in that direction I I I do tend to want to do stuff that people will understand it's a keyboard instrument that um has copper chimes, all tuned to the same note plus octave, and in fact, deliberately slightly detuned. And so when you play the key, if you play it with a slow tremolo, you get this continuous tone, but it's made up of a million glittery tones all kind of piled up on each other. It's a very pretty sound. I managed to convince my department to let me do an independent study, and at that time Charles Seeger was visiting, uh, an important early ethnomusicologist, the father of Pete Seeger. Um, and he, he was way well on in years at that time and, and almost deaf, actually. And somehow I convinced him to be the faculty, whatever they called it at that time, faculty advisor for this independent study. And um, so I'd go like a, every so often, every few weeks, go into his office and sit around and tell him what I was doing. And really this guy was totally uninterested. This, this you know, world leading ethnomusicologist had no interest whatsoever in what I was doing. And, and uh, you know, and then he gave me, you know, a B-plus or something when it was all done. And I'm sure he didn't even remember who I was. <laughs> so, that, you know, yeah, there it was. So, really, I wa- I, it, one of the reasons why I started Experimental Musical Instruments is I said, there's got to be a world here because this idea that it would be fun to make an instrument different from other instruments, that's, a, that's an obvious idea. Other people, I'm sure, are doing great things with this, this idea, but I haven't found them. And I, I really hadn't. I really hadn't made any connection. I, and I'd wondered and I'd asked people and I'd, you know, and I'd gone to Charles Seeger and said, you know, I'm trying to create a kind of organology that is creative rather than just um, studying, academic, you know. And this idea totally didn't interest him and he didn't know anybody else who was doing it or if he did he didn't tell, you know. So, um, Yeah, so I had I had I didn't I didn't have any context, and and so I I, that's why I started experimental musical instruments. So at least that was one of the reasons I told myself. What
4: was your project for him?
6: It was well, I ended up writing a paper in which I put forth the idea. I think it was called creative organology. Uh, You know, uh, uh, creative organology and. and so I, I wrote this whole paper, and I, God, I wish I still had that paper, I wonder what I said. But it was putting forth this idea that uh, there is a, uh, a form of creative endeavor here, namely designing musical instruments and seeing what kind of music, I'll just say that, what kind of music they implied, what kind of music would arise from these instruments. From, if you create instruments, they have in, in, in them potential to make some kind of music, and it might be not be music like you've heard before. It's like devising a new mathematical space or something. So, uh, yeah. So I wrote a paper putting forth that idea, and I mean, I suppose you must have read it. But
4: how many instruments do you think you've made in your career?
6: Well, it, you know, if you include all the the stupid ones that didn't work, a lot. You know, I probably made about fifty that I've liked enough to really work with them, record with them. Um, Uh, sometimes play them in concert, feel happy when I was done making them. You know, there's probably about 50 that are are successful in that sense. And then in terms of uh, ones that were less successful, and if I had any brains, I'd just throw them out. You you can't imagine.
4: More than 200?
6: Probably. I mean, if you include every little piece of tubing where I drilled a bunch of holes in it to see if I could do this, (laughs) then, then a lot more than 200. What have I forgotten to do? I am very interested in the way the uh, the way the personality of the instrument wants to manifest itself musically, and how that relates to the question of does the player or quotes composer um, bring an attitude of uh, I'm going to learn, I'm going to master this instrument and control it and tell it what to do. Versus I'm going to let this instrument take me for a ride.
4: Would you be uh, if your if your twenty year old self could see you now? Would you be would he would he be happy that uh, you would made such a living out of uh, <laughs> Creative organology.
6: Well, <laughs> you'd have to ask my twenty year old self. We'll get on that. I mean, no, the idea that the idea that that paper really did end up being seminal in my life. I think I thought at the time. I think I'm saying something kind of cool here. But I, th- I think I, w- I would have thought maybe it's probably a fantasy to think that, uh, that I would carry through with it. Yeah. So I think I might have been surprised that this fantasy actually ended up not being such a fantasy.
2: That was Charlie Mintz, interviewing creative organologist Bart Hopkin. Here's Bart's cover of the Bill Withers classic, Use Me. next story is about some people who have radically remade the way we hear sound, whether from old magnetic tape found in a dumpster or from living organisms, like tomatoes. Music editor Noah Burbank has spent the winter thinking about weird sounds and listening to a lot of Hawaiian slack key guitar, itself a repurposed musical instrument. A few weeks ago, he talked to some inhabitants of Stanford Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics Sasha Lightman and Jen Carlisle, two musical inventors who've put their own spin on the turntable, and Chris Schaefer a man who has sonified the natural world
0: Today I'm interviewing Sasha Lightman and Jen Carlyle who are two former graduate students at Karma, Stanford Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics We discussed their two musical instruments/installation slash installation pieces The Looping Pedal and Hank's Wild Ride among other things
1: No well, no I mean you no, know, I know if
3: you a bicycle chop shop no, not all. These were things we found in bushes. Yeah, they were f- completely and totally unrideable. You know, n- every bike we picked up had at least one, if not two, flat tires. I don't think any of them had seats still attached. You know, most of the gearing was broken, broken chains. Like, it. it was just, they were just, they were not people's bicycles that they'd just left. They were just garbage. We were picking them up and... Um, Repurposing, repurposing them into uh, art. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what does um, what does Hank's Wild Ride sound like?
1: Well, we actually put a click track on this w- this tape loop, which which is um, just a series of it played at the correct speed. It's a series of <laughs> clicks. A bit of pitch, two it's more like ding, boop, boop,
3: boop ding, boop.
1: Slow down. It creates these almost water droplet sounds. So like bloop, blue bloop,
3: blue bloop. Blue. Blue. Blue.
1: It's really fun. Which is really civilized because in general, the, the, both these instruments tend to be kind of loud and cacophonous. So it's nice to have that civilized background when and then throw effects pedals on them.
7: I don't know.
0: I mean, if, what, what is this? What are we seeing?
1: It's modeled after a DJ uh, battle station that, that consists of two turntables. But instead, we've taken two bicycle wheels and laid them flat and, and kept their gearing on them. And, and a chain around one of the wheels or one of the the, the sprockets and um, And then we wrapped a tape loop of audio tape around each wo- each wheel and And around a tape head and so as you turn the tape wheel I mean sure as you turn the bicycle wheel um, the tape loop is pulled over a tape head and that um, that makes the tape head play sound
0: what what is the tape loop we have playing? I can't I can't pick the tune out.
1: It's um, space is the place by Sun Ra. But in all honesty, it turns out uh, it doesn't matter much. <laughs> space is the place. Space is the place. Space is
7: the place. Yes, yeah, space is the place.
3: So if you step back and look at Hank's Wild Ride, it's about 15 feet long. On either end is a bicycle, um, you know, facing opposite directions, and in the center is a, a pegboard with a bicycle wheel and our our uh, our tape contraption, which is where the sound comes from.
1: I wanted to do something that was sort of like it was almost carnival-like, and um, and it has to do with this this. I, I don't. Th- I think this. I think this has gone in different directions. But originally, I wanted it to um, be inspired by um, by the front garden of my neighbor Jackie when I was in high school, and he lived across the alley from us. And he um, he. I don't know how to tell this story story quick so quickly. So you can edit it. Okay. Well, so Jackie loved his mother, and he wasn't so smart. Um, there, yeah, he thought, Jackie thought that the wind, or the the wind was caused by the waves. We lived close to the ocean, and uh, he he just I don't know. There were just certain things that weren't fully wired in Jackie, but uh, but he was a grown man and he had kids, you know, full grown kids, and um, and when and his gra- his mother died. And so, every week he would go and he would take flowers to his mother 's grave and One day he came and he realized that the flowers had been removed and he was he was absolutely irate, so he went um, he went and he banged on the groundskeeper 's door and and said "You know somebody 's been stealing my mother 's flowers and the groundskeeper said, "No, no, no, calm down every um, month or every two months i I remove them and I, put, I remove everything off of the the gravestones and I put them in, put it all in this shed." and if no one's claimed them within the next time by the next time I do it I throw the stuff that's in the shed away. And so Jackie said, "Wow, well, you, you throw all this away?" And I said, "Yeah." And Jackie said, "Well, can I have it?" So, he populated his like his very small yard, maybe like 12 by 15 foot yard with Every color of fake flower, and birdcage, and little flamingo, and just like all the colors of the rainbow from these gravestones, and it, it, was, it was total art. I mean, it was, found objects in his yard made me smile every time I went by it. When I came back from, I was an exchange student in Belarus, and when I came back, there was like, uh, five, five bouquets five bouquets dead people's fake flowers <laughs> on my front door. And I had to take them inside because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. But it was a, it was a little creepy. So, and then I, went, then I wanted to do something with bikes. So I just thought something that was bike related and had fake flowers.
3: And there are no fake flowers. Carnival related. Carnival, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of fun and whimsical, but also just slightly strange and a little creepy. Yeah, yeah, there you go. She said it well. And a little excessive. You know? <laughs> that oh,
0: okay,
1: that's what we're going to work on today. Okay, go ahead, Jen. Have fun on the instrument. And maybe... You get to play with their imaginations a little bit in terms of the sounds that their bike could make when their bike, you know, you, I don't know when they're bicycling. And then I think the use of all. I mean, we've really stretched this idea of parts that nobody wants anymore. You know, none, nobody cares about the, any of these bicycles. The dummy, or the real, real tape player that we have, you know, salvaged the tape heads out of.
3: Or the um, real tape.
1: tape. A lot of like. Um, Yeah,
3: or the real, just this old stuff that was going to be thrown away. Yeah, like, didn't you go through boxes of old computer music that had been produced at Karma that was just sitting in these trailers and collecting dust and it was just going to be thrown away? Actually, it turns out that people wanted those. I thought no one did. (laughs) That's why
1: we had to record Sun Ra. (laughs) But I did find some blank tapes. But no, it turns out, actually, when people remember that those old compositions are there, they actually want them very much. It's more of a sound art play device than an instru- musical instrument. I'd like you to smile and um And Get to play a little bit. That's really important to me that people have fun on the instrument It makes people more aware of their world and more playful with their world. That's why I like using remade objects Because I think it inspires a sense of play and wonder in people
3: Plus we just feel like we live in a very disposable world and like people buy things like cell phones And then they break and then they just throw them away instead of repairing them or you know you have an old car and Know, people just send them to the junkyard instead of fixing it up and using it by taking all of these old junky parts and making something that makes people happy when they play with it I think is a good thing.
1: Um, if they want to come play it, they can. Oh, it's up at the computer music center. Best to make an appointment <laughs> to make sure it's all working down. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you have any plan for where it should go?
1: Don't, probably. <laughs> um, I think we'd like to show it a couple more times and share it with people, and then um, it'll, it'll go back to the metal recycler, where from whence it came.
0: now a discussion with Karma Director and my former professor, Chris Chafe, about his carbon dioxide art installations. The Tomato Quintet, which takes data from ripening tomatoes and sonifies it, and the Oxygen Flute, the first carbon dioxide piece, which resembles, in many ways, a gigantic virus through an electron microscope.
8: It's like 4 a.m. on a midsummer night in Palo Alto, and... 4 a.m. should be a good time to be sleeping at least in my life but I had this compulsion to see if there was any sounds around the tomatoes that would be it eh, perhaps an influence for this piece that was being done right and uh, hadn't quite solved all the music that I wanted to use for this um, Palo Alto environs in the summer is full of just extraordinary insect sounds you know we get insects that can do uh, amazingly complex rhythms in their communities and I started recording these things you know four o'clock in the morning and I guess that's you know it's not like one event that I'm gonna say oh yeah it was really cool because uh, you know I caught somebody in the act of stealing my recycling or something like that because you know, it's all very tame and and uh, and they can have it if they need it Um it was more just this sort of fascination with what does this city sound like four o'clock in the morning when you can hear everything. You know, you hear an occasional plane, occasional train, maybe, you know, a Harley about, you know, two miles away, and crickets, right? And all of that was incredibly easy to record, you know, once once you sort of let everything settle down. Um Never had any invaders in the tomato patch, you know, just just very benign, very, very peaceful and ultimately these recordings were absolutely useless for the piece. Ah, okay, name is uh, Tomato Quintet and the uh, medium is a... Uh, I guess it, it, it now falls into a genre which I guess uh, I know about from the last three years of my work, which is carbon dioxide pieces the bamboo piece the earliest of the genre that's called oxygen flute Um, and in the San Jose Museum of Art we had a growth chamber full of bamboo that you would walk into and here's some music see some bamboo going and growing, uh, you'll hear this sort of, kind of, the background sort of, I would say kind of an ostinato of flutes playing relaxed rhythms when you first come in, and then a little bit of phrasing starts to happen. You know, it it takes on a rhythm, a little bit of a character, and it reacts, actually, in this case, really closely to your... um, Breathing rhythm over the run of the exhibition there, which is about four months, I think. Um, we accumulated uh, an enormous amount of sample data of the change in carbon dioxide level in in the growth chamber, speeding up four months into. Uh, 40 seconds um, and and you actually can tell when it's the weekend and you know there's visitors or when it's closed Monday you know you can hear the difference because there's no influence from the the um, humans breathing there's only the photosynthesis going on which has its own rhythm Um, and and so we also had you know a side to that that was a a real-time influence too so you engage yourself with the with the sensors in the growth chamber you actually be able to sort of play the co2 let's say and then uh, did this again recently with the tomato quintet only in this case uh, much less of the sort of direct um, involvement with the gases you know in this in this piece later on in the genre we're doing kind of a still life I guess and uh, this is Greg Niemeyer's name for it, a sort of new media still life, where to ma- the activity of a tomato ripening becomes sensible. I was leading one of our uh, sophomore college classes, like the one you were in, to Monterey to do uh, both underwater recording, hopefully see snapping shrimp in action and hear them. Also uh, build, have the students build underwater musical inventions that they could play and, and uh, play Louie Louie on from a rowboat to each other, listening with hydrophones. So this is, uh, this is kind of an important part of my year every year. Um, the uh, oxygen flute piece needed something percussive to give the sound of the flutes a bit of a rhythm when there was no carbon dioxide breathing the flute. So you can, you can take the end of a tube or the end of a flute and, and click near it, and you get the sound of the tube as a pitch, but it's a sort of percussive sound. You know, so it's um, you know, something can easily try with you know, a length of pipe, you know, and just snap your finger at the end of it, and you'll hear the resonance of the pipe. So I wanted to, you know, since these are synthetic flutes, um, I needed a synthetic sort of impulse sound to snap, you know, to, to get that. And, and and so even though there's no breathing of or air being blown into the flute, the pitches may change in the piece, and you want to hear that as a rhythm, and you need to excite it. Um, well, the relationship to the Monterey excursion is is that we were scheduled to go uh, to Hopkins Marine Station the morning of um, September 11th 2001 and uh, we became sidetracked as did a lot of other folks on the planet right then nevertheless we had a graduate student who was um, uh, at Monterey already and dutifully recording snapping shrimp you know in fact during the the, these uh, tragic moments and you know much later in the in in the um, oxygen flute quest for percussion I realized hey I use some snapping shrimp I think I've got some recordings and it really didn't dawn on me until a couple years later that you know what people were listening to in the oxygen flute was was really the kind of almost primeval sound of the snapping shrimp that, that were Contemporaneous with, with, with all this above ground turmoil and you know, human culture in flux. And they've been doing this for millennia, many tens of hundreds of millennia, and never changing their sound. And it was that sound that we brought into the flute.
2: Noah Burbank at Stanford Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. Finally, sometimes great sound just comes to you without you even having to ask for it. Sometimes it's right there, outside your room, banging on your door, telling you you're grounded. Charlie Mintz tells the story of a boy and his father and the music they make together.
4: I can remember exactly one time that my dad's gotten really mad at me. I was in seventh grade. I'd gotten a D on a math quiz and hadn't told him about it. One day, my math teacher handed the class progress reports and told us they had to be signed by a parent. I thought about forging my dad's signature. I'd seen him write it hundreds of times before, and it wasn't even particularly difficult, just an R and a hook diagonal line that was supposed to say Albert Mintz. But then I thought about how embarrassing it would be to be that kid who gets caught forging his parents' signature, and figured it would be better to just tell him. When I came home from school that afternoon, I went to his office, which wasn't really an office, just a converted garage where he kept his computer and his stuff and did work. Dad, I said, there's something you have to sign, and gave him the paper. I've done worse things before and since, but nothing I've ever done has made my dad as angry as keeping my D from him did. He smacked the arm of his recliner with my paper and stood up, his face turning red and mean. He said something about me hiding things from him and overturned a chair next to his desk. For the rest of the day, he wouldn't speak to me. He was silent at breakfast, and during the ride to school with my mom, all she'd say was that I should have told him. He only stayed mad for a day, but I got the point. I told him about my good grades and learned how to keep the bad ones secret. My friend Trevor was the opposite of me. He didn't really care about getting in trouble it didn't change his behavior to avoid it. He took risks, always thought he could get away with whatever he was doing. His parents went out of town a lot, and almost every time they did he'd throw a party, miss one beer can cleaning up the next morning and get grounded. His dad was a nice guy. He'd regularly treat half a dozen of us to dinner and a movie. He'd been retired since I'd known him, and all I knew about him was that he played golf, bridge, and spent a lot of time at the country club. I knew he'd get mad sometimes. Lunchtime at school, Trevor would tell us about the latest trouble he'd gotten in, breaking us up with an imitation of his dad's Texas twang. Bob Friedman's anger was something his son's friends only got to experience secondhand. In front of us, he was smiley and easygoing, so that was the image we had of him. Then senior year came, and by total accident, something happened that let us hear what Bob Friedman sounded like when he stopped being polite and started getting real. Starting in about 10th grade, Trevor and I would send each other songs We'd recorded using GarageBand and the crappy mics that came with our computers Songs were never very good, but we shared them anyway One night, senior year, I got an instant message from him Begging me to listen to a song he'd just made It was called You're Grounded And it said it was by Trevor Friedman, featuring his father I had an inkling what it was But I thought it might have been just a funny title When I finished downloading the track, I put on my headphones and played it. This is what I heard.
7: Okay, well, I was a senior in high school. This is Trevor. And I was supposed to be writing some, like, college essay. I forgot which college I was writing for, but, um... I've been writing for a really long time and I basically got you know bored obviously so I decided to stop stop writing and um, to record a song because that's what I do when I don't want to be doing work
4: the track goes on like this and on and on. At this point, I'm basically just waiting for it to finish. Then, I hear what sounds like knocking on the door. The music continues, and then there's another knock. But Trevor seems not to hear, and he keeps playing. Suddenly, I realize what's about to happen, and start to feel sick.
7: So, I'm I'm recording, and the door flies open, and he, like, storms in. And, you know, I could see sort of the energy
9: loaded up in his face.
7: God I'm getting pissed at you. Put that thing down and do what your mother told you. You are grounded. Dad. Act like you're... I told you. I don't want to have to tell you this again. Just do what you were told to do and listen to her. Dad, I've been working for three hours. I don't care if you've been working for ten hours. Get the damn things done. Meanwhile, my brother, his room is sort of across for my room, like across the hall, I guess you could say so he hears all this commotion in my room opens, he sort of opens his door and sort of peeks his little head through, he's a year younger than me um, and sort of just to check out what was happening so he he pokes his head through the door and my dad looks at him and says you shut up and
5: just get back in your room
7: you're grounded too it's funny because he just hadn't even said anything he was literally just innocently sort of looking over to see what was happening this is." Things were not very good with my parents. Um I think that the stress from the application process exacerbated that. I I think since things were not very good with my parents at the time, you know, he, he had he had enough already and so the sound of my of my music from upstairs was <laughs> enough to, to make him explode instantly. Uh-huh. Um
4: so, uh, what what were you thinking when he's when he's on this tirade? Like, are you are you scared or like?
7: Not really scary, but at the same time, you know, I guess I would say that I'm I'm at least legitimately intimidated by him because he's kind of an intimidating figure. You know, you know this here's, here's a person who doesn't want to be that involved most of the time, but knows that whenever he whenever he needs to be involved, he can very efficiently solve whatever needs to be solved in his mind. It's kind of an intimidating thing. He's like the muscle in, in, in the family his, usually when I get in trouble it's not it's usually not really about the, the particular like incident or whatever it is that I'm doing wrong. It's usually that whatever I'm doing wrong pisses off my mom and then that pisses off him because you know he just wants things to be you know peaceful in his room you know he doesn't really care what's happening in the rest of the house you know he doesn't like doing it. I don't think anyone, any parent really enjoys, like, getting angry at their children, but, um, you know, because he likes it to be very efficient.
4: The yelling lasted about 25 seconds, which is pretty good if you're going for efficiency. Trevor said his dad is the kind of guy that would have completely gotten over his anger in an hour or so, and after a few days, he probably didn't even remember the incident. Trevor, on the other hand, was taking steps to immortalize it. So I sent
7: sent the recording instantly. I sent it to several of my friends, and um, you know, it got around. Um, people started sending it to each other, and more and more people started hearing about it and sort of memorizing the words that my dad <laughs> screamed at me. And um, people who don't even know my dad know that that recording. And some of the faculty members at our high school heard it i think
9: the the pinnacle uh, moment for me with the recording was when uh
4: this is george one of our best friends trevor brought his ipod into government class
9: and played the recording for uh, our government teacher uh miss bekeet the, the look of uh of uh shock and delight on her face was just uh, was tremendous when when has she ever heard anything like that? Anything like a a, a student's father going ape?
4: That pretty much gets at the heart of our fascination with it. Because when had any of us ever heard something like that? It was so strange to hear someone in that moment, so real. It had this weird fascination for us, and we never got tired of listening to it. We'd listen in the car, or at someone's house, or just hanging out. We'd come back to it again and again, to hear Trevor's dad in this completely honest, unrehearsed moment of anger. It was just so unbelievable that one of us had managed to capture that. Our fascination with the track ran so deep that some of us got the idea to remix it. It was irresistible. The source material was just so good. All you had to do was set it to some incongruous music, and you had a hit. Without knowing it, Trevor's dad was providing the soundtrack for our senior year.
7: Put that thing down and do what your mother told you. You are f- grounded. It almost
9: became just sort of like like a hit single within yeah. uh, within the North County coastal community. <laughs> it was pretty pretty wow. effing hilarious. Wow,
7: Get the damn thing done. Get the damn things done. Get the damn thing done. Let's play. What well, about to say? Okay. You got to you. Put that thing down and do what your mother told you. You are grounded, Dad. Act like you're. I told you. I don't want to have to tell you this again. Just do what you were told to do and listen to her, Dad. I've been working for three hours. I don't care if you've been working for ten hours. Get the damn thing done.
4: Trevor's dad was just trying to get his son to do some work, but instead he became a joke to an entire high school. It started with the remixes, and from there crept into our conversations, reaching this level of pervasiveness unlike any joke before. People who'd never even met him were making fun of him, memorizing his outburst and performing it in their best, or worst, Texas accents. All right.
9: It begins with Trevor noodling on the guitar, and then a knock on the door, and then more noodling, and then a knock on the door. God, I'm pissed at you. Do what your mother told you and get the damn things done. You are grounded. But dad, I've been working for three hours. I don't care if you've been working for 10 hours. Get the damn things done.
4: The words weren't always accurate, but the spirit was right.
7: God, I'm pissed at you. Just put down that damn thing and do what your mother told you to. But, Dad, I've been studying for three hours. I don't care if you've been studying for 20 million years. Just do what your mother told you. Don't think and shut up. God, you're grounded. Shut up. You're grounded, too.
4: And sometimes the words were exactly right.
7: Okay. I'm getting pissed at you. Put the thing down and do what your mother told you. You are f***ing grounded. Now I, I want to tell you this again. You just, you just put the thing down and listen to her. I don't know. You act like you're a dad. I've been working for three hours. I don't care if you've been working for ten hours. Get the
9: damn thing to bed. You just shit up and get back in your room. You're grounded, too.
7: Bob Friedman. <laughs> Someone normally would probably wouldn't want other people to know that they would get in trouble with their dad. and But I feel like the, the way that it, that it came off and the words that he used and the tone of his voice and the tone of my voice at the time, it became sort of funny for me. And I, I was like instantly not, you know, embarrassed.
9: At all, I was excited to show everyone it. It really uh, th- says a lot about Trevor. I think you know, I-, I would feel so so uncomfortable doing anything like that. I feel like for most people would would sort of they would feel like it was very disrespectful to reveal that sort of private um, display of emotion. Of their parents, I feel like people would feel that was very disrespectful, disrespectful, or inappropriate, or embarrassing, even to show that. But Trevor, um, you know, I I just you know, Trevor's a goofy guy, and he's he's all about spreading the goof.
4: (laughs) That's a good way of putting it.
9: I mean, not a lot of people really get the chance to
7: sort of record one moment of of like anger from their parents. You know, if I hadn't had it, had it recorded, I probably would have sort of warped it in my mind over the years, but I'm glad that it got recorded.
4: He doesn't regret making his dad look ridiculous. He sees the whole thing as a subversive victory for himself. He was able to take this embarrassing moment, this kind of actually disturbing and uncomfortable moment, and remake it into something that's given his friends hours of, it's not too strong to say, joy. And his dad is completely oblivious to it all. Trevor wonders sometimes what would happen if he let him in on the joke.
7: We've always sort of talked about hypothetically what would happen if he ever did listen to it. Uh-huh. And, um, and I really don't know. It's, it's sort of a 50-50 chance as to whether or not he would be really, really angry and offended by it. Sort of knowing that that all my friends and I have basically made a complete mockery of my father. Or he would just think that it's really funny and sort of not really remember. You know, he probably doesn't remember the exact day when he yelled at me. He probably doesn't even remember yelling at me anymore. But I guess the other, there might be a third outcome or a third thing that happened. Maybe he would just be so confused by it because it's such a weird thing. (laughs) I always sort of imagine, like, all my friends in the room, you know, listening to this recording. Um, You know, my dad walks in. Everyone sort of, (laughs) Word for word, like you know, saying, you know, sort of mimicking my dad, mocking him in a way. Everyone knowing all the words
4: uh-huh, yeah. to
7: this weird, arbitrary, like anger session, and <laughs> you know what I mean. Like how would, how did he react to that? I, I don't really know. I feel like if it were me, and everyone was sort of saying exactly what I was saying, word for word, on this recording, something I didn't even really really remember. Um, I don't know, I think I'd be confused. I'd probably feel a little bit, you know, a little anger and a little bit of just, you know, sheer
4: confusion. I still think about the recording whenever I see Trevor's dad. I think about how something he said and probably forgotten are living on in the memory of a bunch of college kids. It's a funny kind of immortality. To be remembered as the guy who told his kids to get the damn things done. To be the butt of a really good inside joke. It's a tough break. You try to get your kid to finish his college applications, and wind up with your voice set to pop music by some smart ass with time on his hands. May the rest of us never be so unfortunate.
7: God, get Put that thing down and do what your mother told you you are fing Dad act like you're I told you, I don't want to have to tell you this again. Just do what you were told to do and listen to her. I I don't care if you've been working for 10 hours. Get the damn thing done.
2: Today's program was produced by Charlie Mintz, Noah Burbank, and Jonah Willingans. Bonnie Swift and Noah Burbank engineered. Thanks to everyone who was interviewed for our show today. Bart Hopkin, Chris Schaeff, Jen Carlisle, Sasha Lightman, Karen Warner, Shelley Nee, Jade Wang, Hannah Krakauer, George Pritzker, and George Schnurl. The music you heard on our show today was performed by Bart Hopkin from his CD, Instrumentarium Hopkinis. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communications Program, and the Hume Writing Center. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. For Remaking the World We Live In and the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Daniel McDougall.